matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Don't make a bit of sense to me. If that's what being crazy is, then I'm senseless, out of it, gone down the road, wacko. But no more, no less. Welcome to Unhinged. This is episode number eight, recorded May 8th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about the details of treatment-resistant depression. We'll get an update on Doug's progress. And later on, we welcome our first special guest, clinical social worker, Nurit Adler. But first, Doug, tell us all about TRD. All right, then. Well, I, I did want to, uh, we've talked about it, obviously, and it's it's really big focus of the show, but really get people um, a, a real full understanding of treatment-resistant depression and uh, the brain imaging uh, research that's being done. You know, again, everyone needs to really understand the difference between treatment-resistant depression, otherwise called uh, severe intractable depression, um, and understand that it's, it's, it's based in neurology, uh, whereas standard unipolar depression which is just standard depression as opposed to bipolar, or as we used to call it, manic depression, um, which is treatable uh, typically with, with medications and, and talk therapy uh, for a period of time, and then you move along. So with treatment-resistant depression, um, approximately 10% of depressed people uh, are, are considered treatment-resistant. Um, so... It's a debated uh, definition, um, but basically these uh, particular people, like myself, have not responded to antidepressants um, or any kind of medication. My experience with cognitive behavioral therapy uh, and other types of therapy have failed. Um, Even many, many sessions of ECT or electroconvulsive therapy uh, proved unsuccessful. so people with treatment-resistant depression, these people are the sickest of the sick. Um, they spend their days in a kind of living hell. Uh, it can't be transformed simply by a, just a new perspective and shaking it off, even as pop psychologists uh, would like you to believe. Um, and I, you know, unfortunately, I fall into that group. Um, this is a, so a, a like a physical, biological uh, illness, essentially, right? Yeah, I mean, Helen Mayberg, uh, who is, of course, the renowned neurologist that I had, uh, I spent some time with, and she obviously was the one who uh, founded Area 25 and, and all the research based on the procedure that I had. Uh, a direct quote from her is that imaging research has confirmed that, that this treatment is just in depression is, first and foremost, a brain disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite, quite different. So it's, it's really encouraging, uh, you know, uh, all the brain imaging research that's being done, uh, and the possibilities that it presents for treating people with severe and chronic types of depression. Um, you know, the kind that doesn't go away after 10, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, despite finding all the effort, uh, you know, to try and, f- uh, find medication to fight with and therapy and diet exercise. Um, so it's, but the thing uh, to realize is that there's still hope for people with treatment resistant depression. I mean, there's there's combinations of treatments or therapies that, that can work. It's just finding that, that magic combination, depending on the person, it's different for everyone. Absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, DBS, uh, deep brain stimulation, is, is a last resort, um, but it's, it's something that obviously I'm fortunate to have and uh, seems again to be uh, working again for me, taking me from that severe category into um, some semblance of a life um, being more in the moderate category, uh, which is huge. So um, pharmacologists and psychiatrists have generally concerned themselves um, uh, you know, with the overall chemistry of the brain, uh, the imbalance of the neurotransmitters, uh, you know, without really looking into the abnormalities of, of different regions of the brain uh, and the activities in those problem spots mm-hmm. that may be contributing to this intractable depression. 
Um, so neurologists like Helen Mayberg and others are using brain mapping techniques uh, to discover what, what's happening inside the brain and how those functions are connected to mood. Um, the brain imaging technologies, they've really allowed uh, scientists to look at the, the regional patterns of brain activity and you know, really how they determine the, the specific circuitry of the brain and, um, and how it differs in people who are depressed versus normal, happy, uh, I think, annoying people. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding, of course. Um, so, um, you know, that's, it's really um, presented, you know, lots of different uh, opportunities. Um, Treatment-resistant depression is, uh, people must realize, it, it's a, it's a dire condition. It's, you, you failed to, uh, to respond to multiple uh, antidepressant treatments. Uh, and then, of course, ECT. And for some people, it's RTMS, the, the magnetic therapy. And, um, uh, you know, that's really the gamut. If, if you're at that point uh, still suffering, uh, then, of course, yeah, there are options like DBS. Now, how, how about uh, treatment through uh, therapy meaning, you know, talking one-on-one -on -one to, to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, uh, does that typically tend to help people with TRD or it's used in conjunction with other methods? Yeah, I mean, it should always be used. And, and if you're suffering as I have for so many decades uh, and so long, you have built all this cognitive distortion in your brain. So uh, a form, like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, helps you change thoughts and the triggers and the patterns. And, but with TRD being neurological, that has to happen first. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the chicken or the egg in whatever case. Uh, so you have to get to, again, uh, out of that severe category where you're completely not functional um, into some place where you're at least moderate to severe moderate, then you can you have the ability to work with somebody with talk therapy. And I, I do think though you need both, but one has to happen before the other to, right. to give you the ability to do it. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, what I didn't appreciate, uh, you know, in my years of studying depression was, uh, you know, the banality of, of the, uh, the definitions and, and the rating scales. Um, Cause they really, they fail to capture the degree of suffering that these, you know, that, we experience, uh, it can only be described as a malignant condition, which is mm -hmm. defined as a pervasive state of sustained mental pain and physical immobility uh, with no off switch. So, um, sounds terrible. <laughs> and it is, uh, and it's not something that, that you can do anything about yourself. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's out of your power. I mean, you, you, you can't tell a person with Parkinson's to stop shaking. You can't tell Stevie Wonder to, hey, take a look at this right. closely. Yeah. You know, it just, it's just, it's the same thing. It's, it's just as, you know, it, it's just a, a, you're stripped of, of everything in life. Um, so you, you need that support system, which, of course, we're going to be talking with uh, Nareed Adler later on, on, on family and all the, the possible support systems you might have. Mm -hmm. uh, but, the, you know, it's, it's imperative that they understand the disease, that they do their own reading on it, and, uh, and, and simply understand that uh, anything that happens is, is a direct product of the disease. You know, these bad things, whether it be... Uh, um, chemical dependence or, or, you know, again, how you communicate with family when you're mm -hmm. in this horrible state or if you're withdrawing, uh, which is typical, uh, the family will tend to withdraw and, and learn to adapt without that person. And, and it's, it's completely dysfunctional. Right. So the, the, the uh, challenge, the challenge though, is for the person who's suffering to actually take the first step to find help. And, and that's not an easy thing for a lot of people. No, it's it's terribly difficult, and uh, it's very hard. It's very hard, and it's the you know, real key is you know I've said this before is getting um, the right diagnosis. Mm -hmm. That is really key, and and before that, you must find the right doctor, uh, somebody who's going to have the time for you. Because again, this is not just a regular part of their schedule. Like I was telling you that 
I'll go into my psychiatrist and he might book me for a 20-minute appointment. You, you can't, it's just it's not enough right. for somebody with a disease of this sort. It's not treating somebody with standard depression. Uh, and and uh, even my psychiatrist uh, you know, admits this is completely out of his uh, expertise. It, you know, it's beyond his expertise. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, we're going to make people aware of this, and that's our job. And um, the more they, they understand it and, and you know, uh, treat this just as they would treat any other neurological condition, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, and just understand and try and make this invisible disease uh, a little bit more relatable in whatever way we can. Exactly, and letting people know that there are support systems out there if you if – you need it, and there is hope. Uh, look at Doug; he's he's actually doing better. Speaking of which, I wanted a progress report. Let me know how are you doing. Have you uh, seen your doctor recently? Yes, uh, I did go into the hospital on Thursday uh, and met with uh, Doctor Peter Jacoby, who's part of the DBS team uh, at UHN uh, United Health Networks, and he's the one that that makes the adjustments. He's the the programmer. Uh, is what he's actually called, and, and makes uh, controls the neurotransmitter, and um, so he can control the intensity level of the the signal, uh, electrical signal from the neurotransmitter, as well as changing the positioning of the electrodes. Um, and so, um, you know, of course, there's white matter, and there's pointing it directly at area 25. So there's there's alterations they can make. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, again, as we've talked about, the data uh, is still not in yet until uh, the rest of the 40 patients have had the surgery. And, and so it takes, it takes time because, right. um, again, as we've said, many people, uh, you know, it could be three months when you feel relief. It could be six months. In my case, it was a little over a year and it's been three years for some other cases. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of time for sure. So how how did your uh, your meeting how did your appointment with the doctor go? Well, I let him know that since April twelfth uh, last month uh, up until now, there's I've cut all the medications out. Um, so right now I'm I'm simply taking a, a multivitamin and and supplementing with magnesium and and B six folic acid and those types of things that are just known to help. Mm-hmm. Um, possible help and uh so i know that the dbs is again uh kicked in um and i'm definitely uh i don't even have to take the, the hamilton scale each time i can tell you what number i'm at mm-hmm. and so I, i've gone really from the high 20s into the teens um so he was very encouraged and you know he doesn't want to mess with any of the settings let's leave it as is uh and i just said let's let's just meet more often and really keep a close eye on this so maybe we can you know by seeing these patterns the show is helping too Mm -hmm. uh, by kind of putting a timeline and seeing the the ups and downs uh, it can hurt you know it gives him some at least direction even if it's an educated guess you know the 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 more uh, uh, info you have is is going to be is is more power to you so tell me you decided to stop taking uh, any prescribed medications? What was what was your reasoning behind uh, doing that? And you did it before you went to see your doctor. So can you explain how that that happened? You know, I've done a, a lot of research and a lot of educating myself over the years, and I just felt that um, you know I've been on one medication after another medication back to back for so many years. I kind of inherently felt my brain needed a rest. Besides just knowing you know just being with the the dbs alone uh so that i can see and and um kind of have that validation that the dbs is what's working because i'm not on anything else uh so uh with both of those things i just thought that um kind of cleaning out your system almost like a cleanse and mm-hmm. kind of hitting the reset button um also the the last medication i was on because uh, uh you know this is trd we're talking about uh, we're 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 working in a, a whole new scope of medications that are outside of what we would call antidepressants um the last medication that i was on uh it's a medication used for restless leg syndrome 
uh, believe it or not. Um, and that's uh, among the, the many things that are in line for us to try. But uh, it, it wasn't doing anything. Um, so uh, it, was, it was a good time to just cut that out. And before st- starting something else, I wanted to just sort of you know, let the brain, uh, you know. Uh, just balance know. out on its own. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, luckily the brain is inherently um, resilient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my case, you know, it, it's been steered in so many directions. I just, it just seemed logical to me. And, and it, it's worked out well that way um, to really know that the DBS is working. And, and that, you know, verifies for us too on the show to say to people that this, this can work. Right. Uh, this is, this is a, a solution for, for a lot of people. Did you have to wean yourself off the medications, or was it something you were able to just stop one day to the next? That depends on the medication you're on, but more often than not, you, 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 medications are, are meant to be weaned off. You, know, you don't want to, especially when you're dealing with medications affecting the brain directly. Right, but I'm asking what you did. <laughs> No, I, I, you know, I do what's what's needed to be done because I don't want to contribute to any damage in the right. brain. So, uh, yeah, no, I do it safely, and of course, you know, I deal with side effects every day of my life. Yeah, um, and I take them for granted. So, um, who needs more? So, I, you know, you definitely want to wean off properly. And so, yeah, I know I did that, uh, and I was already weaning that off. So mm-hmm. it, the timing was perfect. Uh, so with timing, with logic. I felt it was right. Were there uh, and, were there side effects you were getting from your medications that were just really annoying that you just wanted to to stop? Always. <laughs> you know, again, I've been living with them for so long uh, that it's you know. What what type of side effects? Um, well, antidepressants and and antipsychotics, which is what you're sort of swimming in for most of your depression career, hmm. <laughs> if if you will. Um, there are a lot of sort of standard ones that kind of come with most of them, and that would be things like dry mouth, uh, constipation or diarrhea, a lot of GI issues, mm-hmm. um, headaches, uh, insomnia, um, hand tremors, uh, sweating. So a lot of th- those types of things, balance issues, uh, lots of things. The, the last medication uh, didn't have too much. It was you know some GI issues. Um, that sounds like what I get when I eat too many wings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, just think if you're like really gorged on them and, and you might have an idea what, what uh, we live with constantly. That's terrible. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it goes with the you know, territory. But now you're not having those because you, you're off those medications. Well, now that was another way, too, that if I was having side effects, I knew it was going to be the DBS. Right. So uh, I, I do, you know, I still have hand tremors and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there are electrodes living inside of my brain. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, uh, certain temperature adjustments when I go from outside to inside, um, I sweat a lot. Mm. Um, so I, I'm conscious to drink uh, even more than most people should drink, which most people don't drink enough right. water, especially. Um, you know, most people wait till they're really thirsty. And if you, you know, as they say, if you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. Yep. So uh, I'm really trying to chug water because I lose a lot, and you don't want uh, you know anything negative to contribute to to uh, your body's uh, imbalance. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, last thing I need is to be dehydrated and add to any possible inflammation that might be going on. You know, that type yep. of thing. So. Um, and do you feel that the supplements you're taking, the magnesium and all that? Um, how, how is that affecting you, or, or is that just part of the the big equation? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, I don't know. Uh, they're known to uh, to help, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and certain vitamins and minerals uh, are really important, and, and most people without this condition take those things for granted. Right. Um, but uh, you know. Uh, I think people, you know, need to obviously, you know, not you know, indulge. Obviously, you want to get most of vitamins and minerals from, from directly from the source, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as opposed to relying on a multivitamin. Like I'll just eat wings every day, but I'll take a multivitamin. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you, you know, you're going to urinate most of that out. So right. if you get it directly from, from foods that are, you know, very high in vitamins and minerals yeah. and. Uh, 
beans that are good for your heart, the more you eat, the more you fart. Uh, but, you know. You're such a child, Doug. <laughs> I, well, we all are. Yes. I just let it come out. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> but, you know, these things help. I don't know whether it's uh, sort of keeping the DBS fighting or not. It's possible. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm better off taking it than not. Yeah. So. You know, and I'm I'm in fight mode, so it's it's something I need to do religiously, and I do. Well, I mean, it sounds like uh, the the combination of things you're doing right now seem to be working. Um, so that's that's great news. Yeah, and and I noticed that you know again I, I'm um when I remitted in 2013, and we have the of course the video of this of the news story that uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, on our resource page of the website. Um, I, I, it was 180 degree, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a cure Yeah, and it's, and that's unheard of even with DBS. I hold the record as I've mentioned. Yeah. But, um, so I would say now it's probably like a 90 degree, mm-hmm. which is huge still. Yeah. Cause that's really even more than they, uh, intended on seeing the average patient experience. Right. I mean, they're, they're just trying to get people out of the severe category. Exactly. My case, it was just, it was un, it was unreal, indescribable, and and here it's now I'm I'm able to at least function, right. and try and have the the will to take these supplements and to care and to, uh, you know, not just think that that my future is is bleak or impossible. Well, and the hope is that this will continue to improve, and take you out of. Uh, the the moderate category and in, into more normal state. That's right, um, and, and you know I, I'm I'm really just diving into this um, and and being a complete open book because uh, you know I want I don't want other people to go uh, three decades and just you know, you're losing your whole life and, and, you know, I can't get those years back, Mm -hmm. but if I can help somebody else avoid it, um, sure. I might want to hear a thank you at the end, but, uh, but really I, I, I wanted to devote the rest of my life to, to continuing to educate about this and, and, uh, get the awareness out and help people deal with families and friends and, and communications and all that. Uh, well, and that's great. I, I think the the point uh, of the podcast is education and making sure that there are less people in the world that have to suffer through this like you have, and and right. that there is help out there and seek it. Yeah, it's very important, and, and uh, you need you need a real a support system. Uh, there's a lot that I have to do on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really, I've, uh, this fight is on my own. I mean, you, you know, the doctors are, are great at what they do, um, but, you know, they can't have an emotional attachment to you. So, um, you know, it's, it's, you can't really consider them a, a support system. Mm-hmm. They're, um, uh, they're a necessary piece of the puzzle. Exactly. Uh, I'm lucky to have you, and, and the podcast is my support system right now, um, and it's, it's faring well, and... and all the reading and the uh, studying and educating myself that I've done over the years is, is, is actually paying off. And I can see, uh, you know, that it's, it's, uh, well, it's amazing just in, in doing the show, this is our eighth show. Uh, I had no idea how much knowledge you had <laughs> about uh, psychology and, and depression and mental illness uh, until really we started doing the show. I mean, I knew you had knowledge of it. You've been living with it. Uh, but uh, it just surprised me how knowledgeable you are and, and that you're able to speak of it from pure experience, not just, oh, I read this, so I know this. It's like, well, this is what I felt. Yeah, and that's why I feel that, that uh, you know, um, it's my, uh, I don't know how to say it any better, and this is my calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why did I always have an interest in it? And we talked about this, that, you know, in college, uh, it just was natural for me, like guitar was, mm-hmm. like music. So, um, w- you know, why on one hand am I suffering the, the worst case scenario of the disease, yeah. but at the same time, I'm, uh, you know, I've, I have a natural ability to... Um, to understand to learn it. about it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so... 
you know, it's many years of, of research and, and really since the, the DBS surgery uh, four years ago is where I got into the neurology and the neuroscience, mm-hmm. uh, which has been, uh, uh, which is obviously the key to, um, to getting better right now. Yeah. So I dove into that as well. So, um, it's, uh, like I say, it's just natural for me, but, uh, um, to be able to make sense of it and to communicate it is, I think, the hard part for a lot of people. And I always had that as well and, and studied broadcasting. And it was just, it's just something I love to do. So it's, it's, um, it's I guess, putting a, a, a positive spin on, on, on something so horrid. Yeah. And, you know? and I hope it just keeps getting better and better. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and, um, you know, anyone who's, who's suffering, I mean, we, we encourage obviously to write into us, whether on the webpage or through Twitter and Facebook. And, uh, I'm always there to, to answer questions and, uh, and, or anyone who's contemplating DBS and getting involved with that, I can steer them in the right direction and mm-hmm. at least give them, uh, my experience. Um, and there's a lot of things that, w- you know, we'll get into talking to probably in the next show, um, on how, um, you know, what we can do strategizing for moving, moving forward with your family, your friends, and, and uh, the support system that, that is there or should be there, uh, and other things. And on that note, we want to uh, talk about a lot of these things with our very first guest. Today we have a special treat for unhinged listeners – As a guest on today's show, we welcome clinical social worker and psychotherapy practitioner, Nurit Adler. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Please tell us a bit about yourself, how you know Doug, and what your specialties are as they relate to mental health and particularly depression. Okay. Uh, Well, I've known Doug probably for about nine years. Um, Up until three years ago, I used to work for a uh, social service agency called Jewish Family and Child in Toronto. I was a social worker for about 18 and a half years. And then for the last three years, I was a supervisor and then a manager. I used to run their downtown branch Um, of their social service agency. And Doug was one of the clients who was being seen by one of the workers at the agency, and I supervised that worker. So on one or two, several occasions, the worker would ask me to come in and meet Doug and talk to him and just to get to know who he was. So that was really my my initial exposure to Doug. Um, And then, of course, I got interested in his story, and, and we have kept in contact even after I left the agency. Uh, So right now I'm practicing in my own private practice. I run uh, a a five-day-a-week practice, and I I do really just about everything. So I am doing individual work. I'm doing couples counseling. I'm seeing families. Uh, I have a couple of areas of specialties, and they're a bit random and strange, but they they work for me. I work with uh, people with anxiety, so I have a fairly large-scale practice for that. And I don't really do a a practical CBT. What I do is psychodynamic therapy, and I'm teaching people mostly about self-awareness and to be able to catch themselves in the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. As well, I I work with uh, same-sex couples and people coming out in the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. I've worked with people transitioning from male to female, female to male. Um, I've worked with addictions. I worked with uh, all types of depression, all types of of life changes, all kinds of things like that. So although I I do a lot of things, my areas of specialty might be considered the same sex work that I do, as well as some of the work that I'm doing in anxiety. I seem to be doing a lot with sort of... um, university-aged young adults who are really going out into the world and and suffering a lot from anxiety Mm -hmm. and not knowing how to cope with a lot of the things that maybe our generation took for granted is very new and difficult for a lot of these kids so we've talked about that actually too is when we left college and you're set out into the world and you need that direction uh that's important which i didn't have so that's excellent yeah yeah. And often it's easier to come from me because I'm not their parent. Exactly. 
Yeah, you have an immediate defensive uh, posture when you're talking to your family about any issues like this. So, uh, you know, going to a third party definitely uh, eases that, I believe. Yeah, and going to a third party who isn't judging you, but is just listening and trying to understand where you're coming from. And we've talked a lot about family and uh, treatment-resistant depression, uh, in particular Doug's case, uh, and and how uh, a lot of family and friends don't understand that it's a disease, uh, and they yeah. might they might think it's just oh you're acting a certain way and you need to snap out of it. Uh, but there's really a, a, there needs to be an, a, more of an awareness and a removal of the stigma, the negative stigma of what mental illness really is. Yeah. Yeah. See, the, I think the biggest part for families, if I can, I can try and simplify it, is they take it personally. Right. So when, yes. when somebody isn't happy around them and then, you know, might escalate from unhappy to angry to behaving badly to not being communicative and not participating in whatever is going on, the first thing that the people around them do is say, why are you mad at me? Right. What did I do to you? And the difficulties often during the severest parts of the depression, the person isn't really capable of communicating and saying, actually, it's got nothing to do with you. This That's is all key. internal. Yeah. I feel like shit and I, I don't know how to get out of it and I don't know how to make myself feel better and I feel like I'm sinking in quicksand. Mm -hmm. And they're not, they don't have the wherewithal to explain all that and to be communicative. So what it does is it creates a vicious cycle of, oh, you're pissed off again? Yeah. Yeah. And it's been in people struggling with depression, you know, they, they, they feel overwhelmed and just unable to overcome the symptoms. So yeah. they have a strong sense of guilt, which is common. And, uh, you know, they know their lack of, of interest and initiative. They place a real burden on everybody and. You know, it's common to feel guilty, you know, about letting other people down or causing hurt or angry feelings. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and so they tend to they withdraw and then the other parties withdraw and, and try to adapt without them. Exactly. And I think I, I just popped in before to say I think people also feel ashamed. If they're exhibiting bad behavior, then they're feeling shame about it, which makes them even less likely to talk about it. You feel shame, guilt, anger, all of exactly. those things that are exactly. a product of the disease that you've, you've left this trail of, you know, what behind. So, and, that's, and I was telling Ed that, you know, uh, I'm praying for, for some form of remitting. And, and, uh, but beyond that, there's a lot of work to do and a lot of cleanup to do. That's, in a sense, my responsibility. And I'm I'm doing it alone, so it's very you know it's it's tough, hmm. you know. Not only have you been a victim and you've been stripped of all these you know, quality of life, but then you have to, you know, you know lead the, the or steer the ship afterwards. Hopefully, there's an afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when, when you say what's my experience, I'm often coming in helping to steer the ship. <laughs> yeah, that's no, great. And she's very right. good at it. Very right, because. One of the things that I'm trying to do with my clients is get them activated, is get mm -hmm. them moving, if not physically, emotionally, psychologically, get something different happening in their life. Mm. And once you get that kind of a little bit of emotion, you can build on it. That's interesting you say that because we were talking earlier about how uh, doing this podcast has actually seemed to help Doug uh, in, in kind of breaking out of his normal cycle and we've seen quite a lot of improvement since we started the yeah, show i'm not surprised yeah I've, I've also been able to pat myself on the back and that we've we've done a couple of shows where i was in the severe category and yeah. I, I forced myself to do it we we tried a, a few recordings and, and you know it took us a while to get it uh, but but we we trudged through it and and it was worth it it's paid off and you feel better after absolutely uh, no question exactly Exactly. Yeah. And plus, it get, again, I'm a very big believer in cycles, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah. Things beget things. So you can easily stay in a bad cycle in, in any place in your life. I often see it mostly in relationships related to partners. Mm -hmm. But once you get the cycle shifted, even one tiny bit, 
you can actually build on it because one person's uh, better feeds on the next person's and it goes back and, and it, it repeats on itself in a positive way. So this is the same kind of thing. You feel good when you do the podcast and it gives you something to look forward to. It gives you a little bit of structure in your life. Absolutely. It gives you some sort of momentum. Yeah. And some sense, it attributes to some self-worth self uh, and some sense of accomplishment, right? Because uh, let's not forget, a, you know, the major comorbid condition in my case is the ADHD or ADD, I should say, in my case. Uh, and that really, you know, throws in a whole new set of, you know, a whole new can of worms and it really makes it that much harder. It, it was hard in the beginning because we've talked about doing a podcast for years probably, uh, or doing some sort of project together. And um, finally, I kind of realized, well, Doug's not going to start it on his own without a little help because, yeah. you know, he's 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 in his routine and it, it was probably the threshold to actually break out of that routine was too high. Um, so I kind of took the reins there and said, well, let's do this show. And I took on all the technical side of it uh, because, I mean, that's my specialty. That's what I do. Uh, and I love to do that. Uh, it's a lot of fun for me. So the fact that I was doing it with my best friend uh, who could use it uh, as help was just a bonus. So it, it just, it, it really worked out uh, great, I think. Oh, yeah. And and I have to tell you, my the first time I listened to the podcast with the two of you, I literally felt like I was sitting in a room with two college guys. <laughs> It's so intimate, the connection between the two of you is so intimate and so honest and so uh, frank that it's actually just lovely to listen to. Thank you for so that. So I, I actually feel very privileged to be a part of this. Well, we feel very privileged to have you on the show with us today. Well. Th this is exactly what we were going for was to, to uh, as a matter of fact, when we started the show, we said, we we have to be completely honest. We have to... Yeah. Just be open and you have to be willing to tell your story without hiding anything. And to Doug's credit, that's exactly what he's been doing. Uh, and, yeah. and it's, you know, he's actually um, let me know things during the show that I had never known before. Um, so a lot of the reactions are, are real on the show. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's, and I think it's so helpful because you're really giving a voice to, I think, a lot of people out there are are suffering and aren't able to put words to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly aren't able to put really cohesive, coherent stories to it. Yeah. You know? And that's what I think this paints is that it gives people an idea of what it is that you might be going through. Yet you are... You on the other hand, are very charming and engaging. So they have to kind of put that picture together with when you're telling a story about trashing something or feeling horrible, they have to juxtapose that against this lovely guy who's chatting on the podcast. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and so we, it's, we've it's, actually talked about that before, that uh, Doug has gotten really good at putting on a mask and, and acting like nothing's wrong, and he comes across very charming, but inside he yes. might be boiling over with anger or feeling really down or whatever. So, um, but I think his, his feelings have become more, more and more genuine as each show progresses. Uh, you know, he's, he's probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, but I think your, your mask is coming down and your real personality is coming out and they, they're starting to match what you were acting before, meaning you're, you're actually getting better. Well, sure. I mean, you know, as we've talked about, you know, several times the the cognitive distortion that's built up over the years. You know, you have to be completely honest, and then you, as this uh, neutral party, um, you know, can make some sense of it and and ask the right questions, which you do. Um, but yes, you have to be completely honest so that you could. This is kind of a ther a big therapy session. Mm hmm. But it's yeah. a therapy session for the public as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I'm very lucky to have Ed, you know, because even with my family, there are still issues with communication and, and them really getting it, quote unquote. And, and yeah. uh, it just has always been resolved to just figure, you know, and uh, try to understand it as best he can and, and try to get it uh, without ever really obviously feeling it, uh, which I wouldn't wish on anybody. 
Um, but you know, he's, he's been unconditional since the very beginning and it's gone through, even though we've been long distance, um, you know, he's always stuck with me through, through all the hard times without, you know, ever, uh, uh, blaming me or pointing a finger he's just he's understood oh, you're and, making me blush <laughs> well it, it's very it's very important you know and and the more we educate people the more other people will will you know think like ed does and be completely supportive and unconditional and and there'll be more eds uh, <laughs> and you realize they they are there it's just they have to be educated and 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 you know uh, take the right mindset and and always give the person the benefit of the doubt i think is really key well, if I could just jump into that for mm-hmm. a minute, um, and I, I don't know exactly how how to put this out there, but what you're really talking about is a safe place to land. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Ed for you is a safe place to land, and what often that means is you have a person in your life, and not everybody has this. In fact, many people don't have this. But we're talking about a person who sees you as good, as competent, who has a a perspective on you that you don't even have on yourself. And often that person in your life can provide something that, 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 a comfort that is almost impossible to explain. Even the sound of their voice can actually be soothing. Yes, absolutely. Right? So if, if if I can if I can actually give you an example, when I first went into private practice, um, I had I had an incident. It wasn't really a big incident. It was something that I had to figure out whether I needed to report it or I didn't need it, need to report it. And that piece of it, I actually felt very competent and fine to deal with, but it brought up an anxiety in me about a fear of oh my God, was I going to be able to do this or not do this? I was going out on my own. And I remember I felt really, really anxious for a couple of days, and I just couldn't calm myself down. So I ended up calling uh, Doug. I'm just going to write Simon. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Simon is a person who I've worked with. He he uh, works at JFNCS. He was my former boss. He's been a, he was a colleague of mine for many, many, many years, and he's really one of the wisest people I've ever met in my life. But above and beyond that. He really sees me in a very competent and positive way. And when I phoned him, literally the sound of his voice saying my name totally relieved my anxiety. Wow. And when that happened, I remember thinking, wow, this has nothing to do with this issue. This has everything to do with how I feel about myself, about my own feeling of insecurity or fear about my level of competence. If somebody else's voice can relieve my anxiety automatically, then it's clearly not an anxiety about a specific thing. Right. Right? And Ed to you is that touchstone because you see Doug as this great guy. You see him as a great guy who has an illness, but he as a human being you see as a great guy. That I don't, I don't look at myself that way, and, and yet I know it's there, so he brings that positivity out. Right. So when you speak to Ed, you don't feel, even if you're feeling terrible, there is a warmth, a love, and an acceptance that you get from Ed that is actually soothing to you. Well, and I, I think some of that has to do with, um, I mean, I, I mentioned this in a prior show, when, when we first met... Uh, we pretty much became best friends very quickly, and I didn't know he had any sort of uh, mental illness or any issues at all for for quite a while. Uh, yeah. And by that time, I was already invested in this friendship, and I was getting a lot out of it. And you know, he was already my best friend. So from that point on, when I realized, oh, he has a mental illness, then it became, well, how do we make him feel better? Not, you know, I, I never looked at it that way. It's almost like bait and the switch. I screwed you, <laughs> you know? but in my eyes, I couldn't tell you that because I don't want you to think badly of me. And, you know, well, and I also back liked, then, I, I want to be liked. I, I don't know how much you knew what was going on with your mind back then. Yeah, not uh, not clear at all. Exactly. You you've learned quite a lot since then, uh, but I think I think that was that was the the thing. You know, we became fast friends and. Before any, before I knew anything was was you know 
actually wrong, you know, mentally. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so then it was just a, a matter of, well, how do I help my friend? Exactly. And you see, and that's the piece. You've always seen him as your friend first. Mm -hmm. That's it. And the fact that you see him as your friend first, not as a bad guy, a sick guy, a depressed guy, uh, uh, whatever, is the, the key difference. You see Doug as Doug first, and yeah. that makes all the difference. Exactly. Yeah. We had such a strong bond when we first met um, that it, it was it, it just seemed very easy to. It was that it was that, you know, it's cliche, but it was that soulmate kind of thing fin finishing each other's sentences and the unspoken you know understandings and you know those types of things right and it was yeah. like right away well and it was during a time when we were both uh you know going to college for the first time and you know that brings itself it brings anxiety you know i was nervous i was this is my first time on my own and to have found someone that we had so much in common you know and, and we can kind of go through this experience together was you know was crucial uh for me the, ex the acceptance part was there and yeah yeah which is important. yeah yeah that's amazing i have to i have to tell you one of the things that i'm seeing these days which is a little bit different is i'm seeing college students going to first second third year depending on what when it happens uh starting out often it's, it's a very similar cycle they miss a couple of classes mm -hmm. then they start feeling anxious about missing classes then they start feeling anxious about going back to the classes and they feel embarrassed. And what they start is a cycle. I've seen lots of kids where somewhere halfway through a year, they stop attending and they stop telling people and they don't tell people what they're going through. And then they become really isolated. So in fact, they do go through these things on their own and they're not aware that there are other people going through them as well. And so I'm hoping that if they, they hear these podcasts and they see, they can understand the fact that you're isolated and anxious and feeling really horrible still doesn't mean that there isn't help out there. And it doesn't mean that there isn't someone out there who's willing to listen to you and just accept you for who you are. Exactly. But a lot of college kids aren't having the same kind of socialized experience that you guys had 30 years ago. Yeah, and there there is, um, I mean, I do know that because Doug and I were not in the same classes or anything, uh, different majors and all that. Um, I think there was a point in time, again, Doug, correct me if I'm wrong, where you did stop going to classes uh, and were having, you know, you were oh. having issues. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was uh, I didn't go to many classes at all. I mean, the ones I did attend, you know, if they weren't about psychology or sociology in my major, um, it was as if the professor was talking Chinese. And we've, I've talked about it in, in another show. And uh, so I'd stay, in, in, but I, I just couldn't follow anything. My mind was racing. And so it was the ADD. And I, I left class and, and quite often went and self-medicated. Yeah, and this was without anyone else really knowing. I mean, I, I think over time I probably had an idea that, oh, you probably didn't go to class today, did you? <laughs> um, but in general, it wasn't like you were advertising that anyone yeah, yeah. and it, and i just did it because it was natural there's no thinking because again you don't ever have that sense of control like i'm going to decide yeah. to do something and it's done mm -hmm. the depression keeps you from doing that and then the add is it just makes it worse yeah, so right. it's uh, it, it was a tough situation back to what we were talking about before it's a cycle Right. Right. You you miss a couple of classes, then you start to feel anxious about missing the classes. Then you start to feel terrible about the rest of it, and then you stop doing this, you stop doing that, and it just carries forward. Yeah. Well, that's a great observation, and and often overlooked. And and again, you know, kids in college, that's a that's a really important age where you're really becoming uh, a unique person and coming into your own and and getting ready again to sort of become a, a an adult. Uh, what do you think would be a good thing to institute among colleges or before college or, you know, to maybe address that and, and, and get that awareness on, on what you're talking about? Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think that, it, it, number one, I think there has to be some sort of method to get through to some of these kids through the Internet. 
whether it's to offer cyber counseling through the universities or to have cyber counselors looking for uh, going on Facebook pages. I don't know if they can do that sort of thing just to see if there are kids who are having a hard time because they tend to, you might know about it on the internet more than you would seeing them face to face, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're, they're often they're reaching out on the internet to their, to their peers, in these types of situations. So they may not be going to class, but they might be staying up all night playing games with their 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 friends, their cyber friends, right? So I think there might be one way of trying to reach out to them through the internet to somehow get some information out there that if this is going on, you know, there are people available who can talk to you, who can help get you back on track. Um, I think it also really just needs to start being talked about because I don't know... If there's a uh, enough awareness about the the levels of anxiety that the young people are going through, and what ha- happens is the anxiety and depression go hand in hand. So you have kids who are really anxious and depressed, and really not knowing what to do with themselves to make themselves sp- feel better. And so what often happens is parents are getting a call six, eight, nine months later, saying, uh, you know. I haven't been going, I haven't been attending, I'm failing, I'm not functioning, I need to come home. Hmm. And, and then you're dealing with the, the, the issue at that level where you could, and obviously I've avoided it to begin with, but you know, if you don't have hands-on parenting, like the information is out there of what you're talking about. Now everything is out there, but it would have to be something where everyone has to, uh, these kids, you know, there's no handbook to being a parent, same way as there's no handbook is, you know, becoming an adult. So that's something everyone should have to go through almost as a prerequisite to get into college. Oh, let's go through these, these, you know, what could happen or, or, you know, some helpful guidelines to follow. Well, also if, if I, I, I don't even know what kind of a class they could offer, but like even an orientation session where they have two or three right. orientation sessions over the first three months that talk about getting enough sleep. Yes. Yes. One of the, it's shocking to me how one of the interventions that I have with these kids who are going through these difficulties is don't go to sleep past midnight. Let midnight be the latest that you go to bed. Because what happens is they'll stay up till five in the morning and they'll be playing video games or they'll be participating, doing whatever. This is their socializing. And then they're not getting up till two, three in the afternoon. So we're back to the same cycle again. And it's too easy for them to succumb to all the distractions that are there when now you're away from your parents and you're on your own making your own decisions. And it's just too easy to, to, to these kids getting into Adderall and to all these things, you know, and, and I mean, you know, when you're like that, you just want to party. You're not thinking about, (laughs) oh, I need to get my sleep and my fruits and vegetables and, you know, it's it's, it's not an inherent thing for them. And, but that's often exactly what they need. They need some sleep. They need a little bit yeah. of exercise. They need a bit of downtime. They need a little bit of a better time management. And they need somebody who can, who can say to them, hey, you haven't been in class for a week and a half? Come to class. I'll sit with you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you don't worry about it. I'll walk into class with you. It's cool. We can go together. But they don't right. do that because by then they're not really connecting with the other kids in the class. And then it takes a whole spiral, right? So they're not socializing with the people that they're, they're in school with. They're socializing with people who they're familiar and safe with on the internet. Mm-hmm. They're not attending. They're not participating. They're not activated. They're not eating right. They're not sleeping right. Mostly they're not moving around much. How are they going to be okay? Yeah, and it's hard for me to look at it because I, you know, had a whole different situation. But Ed can definitely relate to that. And uh, well, I mean, I, I had I had anxiety uh, when I went to college, um, just because, you know, I, I, at the same time of, as being scared that I was on my own, I was also really excited about being on my own. Uh, it was the first time that I was, you know, away from my parents and and able to do my own thing. And what ended up happening was. Uh, you kind of go overboard because you have this freedom that you never had before. Yeah. And I think the difference is I went overboard for a little bit, but then I'd still go to class. Um, you know, I would, 
I, I still found school to be very important and, um, you know, I didn't have, uh, you know, the anxiety kind of went away as I met more people, made more friends and socialized and things like that. Um, but I, I can see how, uh, with someone like Doug, that, that could be overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, my, my case takes it to a, a different level. But for you, I think that, you know, number one, you had very hands-on and parents that were, you know, taught you well. And you're also a very bright guy who has a very fully functioning brain and, and a very good problem solver and, and um, you know, just realistic. And, and um, so you're able to, to make those the right decisions that are inherently right for you. Oh, I cannot say that I made the right decisions in college all the time. <laughs> no, no, but we, nobody does. But no. I mean, it, you ultimately do. I mean, it's all a learning experience. Well, yeah, you You're learn from your mistakes. Reference. Yeah, you you experiment. You learn from your mistakes in college. That's part of what college is for. I think is you know kind of learn how to be on your own and make your own decisions yeah. and and make your own mistakes so that you learn from those mistakes. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, every regular kid, quote unquote, is going to go through those situations. But are they prepared for it? Mm -hmm. Have they at least the parents and teachers planted seeds in them? And you have that, uh, you know, a uh, solid frame of reference and, you know, sense of confidence and all the things I didn't have. Mm -hmm. and, and even if it's, it's as much as having the kind of, of relationship, either with a parent or a sibling or a friend or an uncle or whoever it is, where you could, they can pick up the phone and say, I'm not doing so well. I'm yeah. kind of freaked out. Can we talk about it? The fact yeah. that there may be somebody else who's available to hear it and not judge them. That's right. That's right. And that, that the judgment thing is, is hard. And you, you, you know, also the, the, your communication, even if you're a good communicator, if I'm talking with Ed or I'm talking to the podcaster or, or to you, Nareed, or, you know, mm -hmm. um, I seem to have it together, but when I'm talking with my family, you you just sort of become the kid again, and and you yeah. start oh, filtering yeah. yourself in the wrong ways, uh, or over filtering yourself, and you know, uh, and so the message you had planned just did not hit, did not come across. So so do you find there's a an inherent communication problem within family that doesn't really exist with uh, outsiders of the family? Friends. A thousand percent. Yeah. Absolutely. There's that added layer of judgment and and reprimand, right? Right. So I'm not going to want to tell you that I just really screwed up and did something wrong because on top of the fact that I'm scared and overwhelmed that I've done it, I'm also really scared that A, you're going to blame me, you're going to get angry at me, you're going to reprimand me, and you're never really going to hear what actually is going on for me. Yeah. The focus is going to be on this outside behavior, on this incident or crisis that's going on, but there's, there's still no connect for the human being. Mm -hmm. There's still no one saying, hang on a minute, are you okay? Yeah, right. That's the issue. So, so, and we've talked about this, Nareed, you and I, and, um, you know, a big message that, that we're trying to get across is that TRD, treatment-resistant depression, or severe intractable depression, um, it's a neurological disease, which yes. is different from having, you know, a, a sort of regular standard unipolar depression. Yes. Uh, you know, which is treatable. It's not pleasant, but it's treatable. Um, and, you know what the differences are and, and how you would explain that to families and friends that just don't get it or for some reason not willing to get it, whatever the case might be. In your words, how would you get that across? Well, I, I, I couldn't tell you 100% whether I could get it across, but the, I think the way I would look to get it across is to try and sort of give someone a picture. So, for example... Um, I had a client many, many years ago who lost a child, lost an adult child, but lost a child nonetheless. And this was a really, a fairly, you could see a fairly happy person. She, she had lived a nice life. Things were okay for her. But this terrible thing had happened in her life. And she was having a very, very difficult time functioning. 
and it had already been two or three months and she was having a hard time working, concentrating, uh, spending time with other family members. Basically, I said to her, look, it's very clear you're going through a clinical depression. This is what's happening. You need to go to your doctor and seek. Let's see if we can get you on some medication. In her particular situation, it was wonderful. The medication allowed her to continue to function. She was still sad. A very sad, terrible thing had happened in her life. But the medication allowed her to be sad within the context of a functional life. Yeah. When you're talking about intractable depression, we're not talking about an incident that has occurred in your life and has caused you sadness. Right. We're talking about a chemical issue that has caused your brain to function differently and to not produce the chemicals necessary for you to be able to be fully functional in your life. Mm-hmm. The, the easiest thing that I might compare it to is diabetes. Mm-hmm. People have a pancreas, but it isn't producing insulin. Right. Therefore, they have to have some sort of treatment in order to produce the insulin. So if you're treatment-resistant diabetic, you're going to die. Yep. Right? Absolutely. Yep. So this is they have to start seeing it as an illness. This isn't somebody in a bad mood. Right. This isn't somebody who's a little bit grumpy and, and needs to see life with the glass half full. We're talking about somebody with an illness. There is a chemical imbalance in their brain, which is causing all of these symptoms and is causing them uh, symptoms that are debilitating enough for them not to function in the rest of their life. That's right. I mean, it's a brain disease. I mean, you know, imaging yeah. research has confirmed that. This is, a, you know, it's this... A, a totally neurologically based uh, type of depression. Oh no! Well, the only thing I was going to say is, for example, if I'm if I'm uh, doing an assessment with a client and I'm talking to them, and well, oh, so you're coming in for counseling, okay? You know what? I often will say to them, so what brings you to counseling now? Right. Mm-hmm. That's one of my questions because I'm looking to say. Is there an incident that has happened in their life or have they just gotten to the point where they need intervention? The other question I might ask, because often I'll have someone in my office who's who's very weepy, very emotional. I'll say, how long have these symptoms been around? And if they're going to say something like, since I was eight and we're talking Mm -hmm. about an adult. Red flag. Yep. (laughs) Big red flag. Then we're not talking about, oh, there has been an event. We're talking about a chemical imbalance. That's right. Right. Which, at least in this case, they have to realize that, you know, we're trying to put a definition to it, but it's, you know, people who have tried, you know, basically, in my case, every kind of antidepressant, every combination thereof, and then several rounds of uh, electroshock therapy and uh, everything under the sun. Uh, yeah. And they, you know, all these definitions of treatment-resistant depression—they fail to capture the degree of suffering that the parents, that the patients experience, and it really can only just be described as a malignant condition, you know, a yes. pervasive state of sustained mental pain and physical immobility that has no off switch. Yeah, I think if uh, if people who have never experienced depression. Uh, if something happens in their lives where they suddenly do feel depression, they can understand how horrible that feeling is. As an example, um, my father, uh, happiest guy in the world, never had an issue. Um, and then, you know, my mom passed away and, but, but her, her death actually took a while. It was cancer. So, you know, it took, he was prepared for it because we knew she was going to pass. So, so that happened and yes, he was sad, but he didn't get depressed because he was already ready for it. But then several years later, he, he got married again and his second wife, after 12 years of marriage, um, she actually, uh, died as well, but within the span of two weeks, uh, he was not prepared for it and he fell into a deep depression and he, he told me. Um, at that point, uh, he said, I, I want you to know, I want Doug to know that I now understand what you go through. Um, wow, because, that's... because he actually felt it. He luckily, he went to his doctor, they gave him some medication. 
it passed. He was still sad, of course, and he's still sad, but, but he's moved on and he's, he's gotten better, but it stuck with him. He's like, wow, if this is how he feels every day of his life, I'm amazed he's still alive. Yeah. And, and to have no light at the end of the tunnel, no solution. I mean, right. completely intractable. And, um, you know, this is circumstantial, like, like, Narit was saying clinical depression. There's there's a reason what what caused it, and there's you know you can take maybe medication to allow yourself to have some good talk therapy and work through it and mm-hmm. and have an endpoint and to get better. Uh, yeah. Here you see basically no way out. Right. Yeah. Very different. We're uh, we're coming up on uh, forty minutes. Um, oh wow! Well, so, I knew uh, Nareep was going to be the best, and, and <laughs> I mean, if great. anyone is in in Toronto, I mean, uh, I've talked about it before. Uh, there's um, not a lot of, of of great talk therapists or talk therapists in general here, or psychologists. Uh, you know that uh, is not just going to put a label on you and give you medication. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in Toronto, uh, Nareep's the best. Thank and we do have a, a link uh, to her website and her information on our resource page on unhingepodcast.com. Nareet, thank you so much for being a part of our show today. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. Uh, and you've given us a lot of great insights. You're welcome back anytime. Anytime. Thank you so much, Nareet. Well, invite me. I'm happy to come back anytime. You're the best. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. And like I said before, just uh, being a part of this, it feels very much a privilege to me. So thank you. For for us too. Thank you very much. So that's our show for tonight. Uh, We want to thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Please follow us on Twitter at UnhingedPC and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash unhingedpodcast. Also, be sure to check out our website if you haven't done so already. It's at unhingedpodcast.com. We'll see you all next week. Take care. Take care.